If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we're going to be looking at two different passages of Scripture this morning. Um, the first passage comes from the 13th chapter of John, and the second passage comes from the 14th chapter of John. If you are just uh, joining us this morning, we are in the midst of a brief sermon series that we are calling Flourish. And the sermons from this series all come from the Gospel of John. And the question that we're asking throughout this series is this, how do we really, truly flourish? Not just exist, not just survive, but actually thrive. In other words, how do we live the good life? What is the good life? A statement that I've been making as I've introduced each sermon in this series is this, that Jesus didn't come to make us more religious. That's just not what Jesus had in mind. Jesus came to help us to flourish. Last week, we looked at the purpose statement of Jesus' ministry. We know that this is the purpose statement of his ministry because it came from the very lips of Jesus. He said this, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That was the reason for which Jesus came, to give us life, and not just regular life, not just a little bit of life, but abundant life. And the two passages that we're going to look at this morning lead us into the very heart of the Christian faith as we continue to think through what it means to flourish. So I want to read each passage for us. The first is John 13, 31 through 35, and the other passage is John 14, 15 through 21. Both passages are printed for you in the worship guide if you want to follow along as I read. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, John fourteen fifteen through 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest himself to me. Before we get into these two scriptures together, let me pray for us and ask for 
the helper, the Holy Spirit, to help guide us through this passage. Let's pray. Father, come to us now through your Holy Spirit. You tell us that you are present with us, that we as your people, the Spirit indwells us. So Spirit, we look to you. We pray that you would guide us deeply into this text. We pray that we would not just receive it as content or information, but that we would receive it as transformation. It is only you that can bring about this work. So Holy Spirit, change us. Change us regardless of where we find ourselves this morning, whether we have walked in believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe about the Christian faith. We pray that you would reveal the truth to us in such a way, again, that our lives might be changed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with a question. Why does beauty have such an effect on us? In other words, when you, you see something beautiful, why is it that it impacts us or moves us so deeply? I'm thinking particularly about something like a sunset. I mean, it, it's almost kind of bizarre and funny if you think about it from a certain angle. A, a sunset is a sunset, right? But why is it that as human beings, so often when we see something like a sunrise or a sunset, it moves us deeply to the point that we might write about it, to the point that we might talk about it with others, to the point that if we are alone viewing this beauty, we think to ourselves, I really wish somebody else was here to take this in with me. What is it about beauty? What is it about a sunset that has such an effect on us. Well, I think C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, helps us out here. Uh, the context here is that he's talking about this very question, really, and he's specifically talking about the morning star that we might see if we wake up early enough before the sun rises. He says this, in one way, of course, God has given us the morning star already. You can go and enjoy the gift on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do we want? He says, ah, but we want so much more. Something the books or aesthetics take little notice of. But the poets and mythologies know all about it. We do not want to merely see beauty, though. God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty that we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Do you hear what he said? To be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Hold that thought. What is the heart of Christianity? I'm asking this question because that's the title of this morning's sermon, and that's the question that we're asking of uh, these two passages of Scripture this morning, because I believe that they do lead us into the very heart of the Christian faith. What is the heart of Christianity? Some might argue that the heart of Christianity, the heart of the Christian faith, is justification by faith. What is justification by faith? Well, justification is a biblical word. And to be justified is the act by which God declares us to be righteous based on our faith in Jesus Christ. So in other words, uh, the context is that when it comes to the Christian faith and the understanding of the good news that is at the heart of it, we cannot 
come to know God. We cannot become right with him based on what we do, but it's through faith in what Jesus has done for us. And when we place our faith in Jesus and his work, we are justified by God. God says, you are now right with me on account of your faith in Jesus Christ. Justification is incredibly important. But justification isn't quite the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, One theologian says it this way, we are not justified just to be justified. We are not justified just to be justified. We could ask this question, uh, talking about justification, what are we placed into such a status for? This status of being made right with God, what is the purpose of that? What is the intent of it? Why does God justify us? When we start asking that question, I think that helps take us a little bit further into the heart of Christianity. We could ask it this way. What did God make us for? For what purpose did God create us? The Christian story claims that something has gone wrong, terribly, awfully wrong. And it's why we know things are not the way they're supposed to be out in the world. And this is foundational um, to understanding who we are and our predicament as human beings. But it's also foundational to understanding why this not to be, not, not supposed to be-ness of life is what it is, and why we experience it. And it's because, the Christian story claims, we are cut off. We are alienated. We are separated from true life and goodness. Now we're, we're arriving at where we want to go the rest of the way this morning. At the heart of Christianity is communion with God. Sharing in the divine life, the Apostle Peter would say. Participation in a relationship. Remember what C.S. Lewis said. Remember his argument. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Why is it that beauty has such an effect on us that it's not simply, so it's not that just seeing it is enough, but there's a sense inside of us that we want to get inside of it that we want to be uh, enveloped by the beauty. The Christian story gives us the rationale, gives us the understanding for why that is, because we are separated from our true and good source of life. And the heart of the Christian faith is being restored to that life so that we might know God and have communion with him. We are meant to participate. We are meant to live a life in such a way that we participate in God's own life. That's the the big point of what we want to to get out of these texts this morning. We are meant to live in a way that participates in God's very own life. This is the heart of Christianity. As we participate in the very life of God, what is it that we find? What is it that we experience? I want to talk about two things um, from these two passages, intimacy and love. As we participate in the very life of God, as we enjoy communion with God, What we find, what we experience, um, at the very least, are two things, intimacy and love. Look at the first two verses um, um, from chapter 13 that we're focusing on this morning, verses 31 and 32. This section starts in this way. When he had gone out, 
Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This verse, verse 31 in particular, is the beginning of what theologians refer to as the farewell discourse. The end is nearing for Jesus, the end of his public ministry, the end of his earthly life. He is about to begin the journey to the cross, to be crucified. And this verse begins this discourse that he has with the disciples. And in chapter 17, we see that it's not just a discourse, but we are brought into the very prayer life of Jesus as he prays to the Father, um, sensing that this end is near for him. And these words um, that Jesus speaks to his disciples, particularly in these two passages of Scripture that we're focusing on, like I've said, bring us into the very heart of the Christian faith. The departure of Judas, that really sets the context here. That is why Jesus says what he says in verse 31. Right before this, it has been, Jesus has announced that one of his disciples would betray him. And Judas goes off and departs from the community of the disciples. And Jesus knows that that act, that departure of Judas, is essentially what is going to set into motion the end. It's going to set into motion the process that will conclude with Jesus giving his life on the cross. Jesus lays out, in beginning at this point, all the way through chapter 17, he lays out for his disciples what he expects of them when he is away from them. So you could think of it kind of as Jesus' final words to his disciples. He's preparing them for life after he has physically gone from them. And he uses this word glory, glorified. Did you catch that? It's kind of strange language that he's using here. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. That's a whole lot of glorifying going on, isn't it? The Hebrew word um, translated glory in the Old Testament means weight. And the Greek word used in the New Testament means praise. So as we bring these two concepts together, what we conclude is that God is massive. God is great. God is glorious and magnificent. He's worthy to be praised. There's weightiness to God and his character. You could say that when we truly encounter God in his beauty, we are drawn to it. And to take it further, as C.S. Lewis argued, we, we want to get inside of God's very own life. It's not that we become part of God. Uh, There's a distinction between God and his creation. Uh, We are created in the image of God, but there's still a sense in which we are meant to participate in the divine life, to enter into God's very life and to experience some of what he experiences. The glory of God in Scripture is also connected to the very presence of God with his people. And that presence we are learning in the Gospels is uniquely revealed in Jesus Christ. So think about what Jesus is saying here. If if we take the the full thought here in these two verses, Jesus is essentially saying that God's glory will be most clearly revealed when Jesus goes to the cross. This is odd because 
At least, as I think about the concept of God's glory, I would expect for God's glory to be revealed at those moments in which the power of God is most clearly displayed. And actually, the power of God is, um, is clearly displayed at the cross. But I think you get what I mean, that why would it be that what is being highlighted is the moment of humiliation, the moment of weakness for Jesus is the moment in which God's presence, his glory will be most revealed. Well, we're starting to get an idea of who God is and what he's like and how, what his character is like and how he works in the world. Now look over with me at John 14 um, for a few moments. We're, we're looking at verses 15 through 21 there. There are basically two brackets um, to these verses that we're looking at in, in that chapter. And the brackets basically are talking about love. But what is it that we find in between those two brackets? Jesus makes these opening and closing statements about love and obedience in that section. But then there's this content in the middle that links it all together. What is that content? That content? It's the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role. Look at verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, if we link this together, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to love. That's clear from this text. But it's more than that. Jesus links the Holy Spirit's dwelling with disciples with Christians to the fact that the Father and Son are in each other. That, that, that language comes right after where I stopped reading. Look at verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You catch that? You catch what Jesus is doing there. Jesus is teaching that there's a sense in which he is in the Father, the Father is in him, and the Holy Spirit uh, is the unifier that brings all of this together. And Jesus takes it a step further. He now um, takes a step outside of God's life to speak of our life and says that it's the Holy Spirit who draws us into this life that the Father and the Son enjoy together, this communion that they enjoy with one another. This word, helper, it literally means something like a legal friend, an advocate. This is the role of the Holy Spirit, to come and be with us, to be our friend, to be the very presence of Jesus in us, to be our advocate, our legal friend. Jesus is going to leave his disciples. He's going to physically depart them. And so he's preparing them, as I said earlier, for what life will be like. And he wants to assure them and reassure them that though he will not physically be present with them, he actually still will be present with him, with them through his spirit. And this is what we celebrate during this season in the church calendar, the season of Pentecost. It was Pentecost Sunday two Sundays ago. Pentecost is that moment early on in the book of Acts in the early church when the Holy Spirit descends, the Holy Spirit dwells upon God's people just as Jesus promised, and they receive the very life of God. 
They receive the very presence of, of Jesus so that they are then empowered to go into the world and to live as though Jesus was physically present with them still because they have his spirit. This is the heart of Christianity. What is the heart of Christianity? This union, this communion that we're talking about. Wayne um, talked about this uh, in, as he was leading both the, the intro to the service and the confession of faith. At the heart of reality in the universe is communion. This is mind-boggling to think about. Genesis begins, in the beginning was God. Who is God? Well, as the, the biblical story unfolds, we are able to see that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Now, it wasn't too long ago that I think it was the first sermon in this series. I always say this in talking about the Trinity. The Trinity is so hard to wrap our minds around. It's not something that we can diagram. It's not something that we have a formula for. Um, But that's not the point. The point is to enter into the Trinity, not to um, analyze it, not to figure it out, but to enter into its very life. And I was reminded by um, more than one commentator this week that the Holy Spirit or or the Trinity, the fact that God is um, triune, is one of these things that, as we think about it, lends credibility to the Christian faith. Why is that? If I were making this faith up, I would not choose to go in the direction of having God be three in one because it's so confusing. It's created so many problems for people throughout history But this is just the way that Scripture works. Those things that we come across that seem funny, when we begin to to think about it through that lens, as we look at it through that lens, we realize, huh, if this is made up, why why would they have done this? Why would they have chosen to go in this direction? And so I want to encourage you with that. Just because something is hard, something is mind-boggling, it doesn't mean that it can't be true. In fact, Some of the things that are most true in life are the things that are indescribable, right? That are hard to talk about. At the heart of the universe, at the heart of all reality is communion. God himself enjoying fellowship, enjoying community within himself, relating within himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Intimacy. Deep intimacy. And so when Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, tells us that human beings are made in the image of God, you you, you see the implications. That we are made in the very image of this life of intimacy, this life of relationship. It's why Wayne, as he introduced the confession of sin, talked about how we are made uh, by community for community. God within himself is community. He enjoys relationship. He's a social being. And Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's teaching us this morning, that the Holy Spirit is ultimately the presence of Jesus that is given to us as disciples to be drawn into this life so that we might be in the relationship that Jesus talked about, how he is in the Father, the Father is in him. I don't think that this is how we typically view our faith is it? Sometimes it could be that we maybe focus so much on justification by faith, and we view it as the end game. 
And remember what I said, justification is not the end game. Justification is a means to an end. God declares us right with him. He gets us back in right, right relationship with him so that we then can have communion with him, what we were made for. But sometimes I, I think that we focus in on justification and we, we, we think of it as the end game. And as a result, the, the thinking that can come along with it, or at least the, the lifestyle that can lead to, is that Christianity is something that is kind of already done. It's done in the past. Our, our faith is something in the past. God did this for me. I put my faith in Jesus, and now basically I just wait until the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, our faith in the here and now is irrelevant. And we talk about our faith kind of in transactional terms. We inherit these words that are uh, biblical and helpful, but when we focus on them in isolation to this relationship, this communion that we're talking about, we miss the mark. Words like credited, that Jesus' righteousness is credited to us, which is absolutely true and biblical. That's how we're brought into relationship with God. But again, that's not the end game. The end game is communion and intimacy with God. Donald Fairbairn is a theologian, uh, and he writes this in his book called Life in the Trinity. Beneath the superficiality of virtual celebrity lies something that is really important, namely the idea buried within each of us that to be significant, we need to be attached to someone who is significant. What makes people significant in their own right is something that is out of reach to most of us. So for most of us, the only way to be significant is to be connected to someone else who is significant. And even though the way we express this idea is thoroughly skewed, the fundamental intuition lying beneath it is exactly right. Christianity teaches us that our significance does not ultimately lie in what we accomplish or what we do. It lies in the one to whom we belong. All right, now we are working on making this relevant to our lives. We were made in the image of God, in the image of this triune God. The goal of salvation is restoration to that relationship, restoration to the very communion that we were made for. And now we can make the connection back to the C.S. Lewis quote. Why is it that we we feel like we long to get back into something that we're currently disconnected from? And why is it that we have this longing for significance? And as Donald Fairbairn argues, you know, for so many of us, we feel like our lives aren't significant, so we try to attach our, ourselves to somebody who is more significant. Why do we do all of these things? It's because deep down, what we were made for is communion with the triune God. We were made for intimacy with God to derive our identity, our, our sense of worth, our sense of who we are from the triune God, and to enter into the very life of God for the purpose of communion, knowing him. That is what makes us who we are. I want to talk about love now. Love is the other uh, thing that we find when we enter into the life of God. It's the other thing that we experience. Let's go back again to John 13 focusing on verses 33 and 35. In verse 33, Jesus says, little children. This is uh, an affectionate title that Jesus is using. It's the only place that 
Jesus or, or anyone uses it in the Gospel of John. It was a title of address used by Jewish rabbis for their students. Jesus is getting intimate with them. Like we, we just talked about, intimacy is one of the things that we enjoy in relationship with God. Jesus is beginning to go in a different direction now. As we discussed, Judas has departed. He knows that what is being set into motion is the end. And so he gets intimate with them. Little children, I, I, I need to instruct you. I need to teach you. Jesus is caring for them. He's loving them well. And what Jesus goes on to say is that yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus is going to leave them. He needs for them to understand this. He needs for them to be prepared for this. This is a big deal. Think about it. They've spent the last three years um, in relationship with Jesus, in following him, in being with him, in hearing his teaching and his instruction. And he's going to leave. And so he knows that he has to prepare them for this because even in preparation, they're still not going to be able to, to, to have it sink in well. So Jesus tells them that he's going to leave them. But he's highlighting something else, that while he is going to leave them, he's not going to leave them. He says, um, again, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, go back over to John 14 with me again, and we're going to look at verse, um, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans, so that's what we already looked at. I will come to you. When is G Jesus speaking of? Commentators, um, biblical scholars disagree about this. Some think that it, he's referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Some think that he refers to his physical coming to them after the resurrection. I tend to um, lean toward that view, that Jesus is basically instructing them in multiple time periods. That there's, he's going to leave them, but he's going to come back to them. He's going to be present with them. And then he says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. How is that? He's going to leave permanently. How are we going to see you? Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He's talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is binding all of this together again through the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not only that which brings us deep, more deeply into union and communion with God, it's also that which gives us a deeper experience of the love of God and empowers us to demonstrate the love of God. Remember in the passage in John 14, I talked about the brackets. Um, the brackets are basically love and obedience, and then in between is the Holy Spirit. So now let's look at the brackets. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What's going on here? What is the love that Jesus is talking about, and why is this so strange? What I mean by strange is that he's talking about love and obedience together. 
He's talking about love and commandments together. We don't do that. We get uncomfortable by that. It's usually the case um, that we would argue that, well, love is not really love if it's done out of duty or obligation. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, one thing that Jesus is making clear is that we are not equals with Jesus. In the relationship that we have to Jesus, he is superior. He is in charge. He is Lord. And he is the one who instructs us in how to live. Now, remember, Jesus' instructing of us in how to live is for our good. It's for our flourishing, ultimately. But it is Jesus who calls the shots. Jesus is in charge. And Jesus tells us that he is commanding us. He's commanding us to love. Back to John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This is not a new commandment. So what is Jesus talking about here? This is an old commandment. To love your neighbor is a commandment that goes back to the very beginning. So what does Jesus mean by new? And this newness that he's talking about is emphatic. The way that this is constructed, the words that Jesus uses, this word new, it's found nowhere else in the Gospel of John. It's in the emphatic position. In other words, it's really important. Jesus is saying, I want you to hear this. I'm emphasizing this. This is a big deal. But what is actually new since it's an old commandment? It's love within the community of the disciples. It's a love that is rooted in another kind of love. The beginning of John chapter 13 is that scene that we're probably all familiar with, regardless of the exposure to the Bible that we've had. It's that scene in which Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. When Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, he is modeling for them the love that is to be displayed in his kingdom. So it's not a coincidence. There's no coincidence that Jesus is talking about this pretty much immediately following that scene of the foot washing. That, that illustration is concrete in their minds. It's fresh in their minds. And so Jesus is basically drawing from that. Okay, you just saw love modeled. You just saw love demonstrated. The new commandment, I want you to now love one another with the love in which I have loved you. That's what's new about the commandment. Not the the command to love one another, but the source of it. The source of it is found in the love that Jesus has for us. And so we are to love one another in the context of the church, in the context of God's family, with the very love by which Jesus has loved us. And it's not only new in terms of the standard or the model. The model is now Jesus. It's more than that. It goes deeper than that. It's a command designed to reflect the relationship of love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why throughout both of these passages, this language of of love, of Holy Spirit, of being in. It's all intermingled. This new commandment to love is a commandment to love in such a way that reflects the very love that God enjoys and experiences with his very own 
being. This is not just an obligation. This is a privilege. And this is a really important point that I want us to dwell on as we wrap up. This is not an obligation. This is a privilege. Yes, Jesus commands us to it. He can't command us to any, anything else because this is who Jesus is. This is who the Trinity is, love. You know how John elsewhere uh, in one of his other epistles says God is love. So Jesus has to command us to love. But we don't love simply out of duty or obligation, although it is our duty and obligation because of how Jesus has loved us. It is a privilege for us. So it's both end, right? Yes, it's duty and obligation, but it's also privilege. And it's privilege because of the love by which Jesus has loved us. How is it that we get the motivation, the power to love one another in the way that Jesus is commanding us to? Where do we get that from? And this, I want you to see, again, brings us into the very heart of the Christian faith and what makes Christianity unique in comparison to all other religions, all other worldviews, all other ways we might approach life. It's that God gave his life up for us. This is the heart of the gospel, the good news of the Christian faith, that Jesus died for us. That God, who enjoyed all the glory imaginable within himself, all the privilege that we could uh, uh, imagine, he condescends to dwell with us and ultimately to give the life of his very own son. Imagine the, 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 the heartbreak, in a sense, that must have been felt within the Trinity. The father giving his son like that. But at the same time, love was maintained. Because the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And ultimately, Jesus is doing this act out of love for his people. We get the source. We get the motivation, the power for love by constantly coming back to the love that Jesus has for us. It is a deep love. It is a powerful love. It is a strong love. It is an unrelenting love. Despite our constant running away from Jesus, despite our constant inability to obey his commands, such as um, loving one another, Jesus maintains a deep and strong love for you. I want to draw your attention to um, a reflection quote that we have in the worship guide. It comes from Peter Lightheart, and I think this is a, a good way to conclude to Um, bring everything together. For Jesus, incorporation into the communion of the Father and Son by the Spirit overflows into the life of the community. The church is not only the tabernacle of God in the Spirit, but each member makes room for every other. The incarnation, that is God taking on, on, on flesh in the person of Jesus, is good news But like all good news from God, it comes with a demand. God dwells with you, dwell with one another. God made room in humanity for himself to make room in himself for humanity. Therefore, stretch out to make room for others in yourself. God tabernacled among you. Stretch your tent curtains so that others can pitch near you. 
These are beautiful words. Beautiful words, because it now makes the connection for us. It, 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 it makes the command of Jesus relevant. All of this content, all this theology that we've been talking about, about the Trinity and how we're meant to enjoy life in the Trinity, in the very life of God, and how we are commanded to love others with the very love that we've been loved with. This is bringing it all together practically, particularly in the life of the church, because in, this, in these particular passages, that's what Jesus has in view, his disciples and how they live together. And in verse 35 of chapter 13, he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. In other words, how will the world know that the gospel is really true? How will the world know that Jesus is really Jesus? That he really is God? That the Christian faith is true? How will the world know all of this? By the way in which we love one another in the church. Pretty powerful, isn't it? The world will know that we are God's people by the way in which we love one another. The way in which we make room for one another in our lives. Now, this is challenging. Uh, It's messy. It's uncomfortable. And unfortunately, so many of us, when we rub up against that discomfort, we go in the other direction. It's easy for us to live in isolation. It's easy for us to alienate ourselves from others. But when we do that, we are missing out on something beautiful and wonderfully true. And that is this fact that God has made room for us. And as we make room for one another... Not only do we experience more of one another, we experience more of the Trinity. We experience more of the life for which we were made, life in God for one another. And so this morning, Jesus invites us into this kind of life. He invites us into a life in which we display love to one another, a love that looks like Jesus washing the disciples' feet. A love that looks like Jesus giving his life for others. It's a duty and a command. It's an obligation for us, but ultimately it's a privilege. And as we learn to find our stride in living in the Trinity, in living life in this way, we flourish. We flourish, right? There's nothing else we can conclude. We flourish because it's the life for which we were made. And so I'll leave you with this thought. What we resist, making room for others, displaying love to one another because it's uncomfortable, it's messy, when we resist that, we actually create barriers that keep us from flourishing. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for defining us. Thank you for giving us our identity. And thank you for giving away. Giving away that we might be rescued from our predicament of being enslaved to our sins. We praise you for drawing us back into the life of, of, that you enjoy within yourself. I pray that you would give us deeper experiences of this life. I, I, I pray that we would 
find ourselves belonging more and more, that we would derive our sense of belonging from within the Trinity. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would empower us to love better, empower us to love well. Bring us back on a daily basis to the love with which you have loved us, and may that love overflow to others. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.